Welcome to Up My Hockey with Jason Padolan, where we deconstruct the NHL journey, discuss what it takes to make it, and have a few laughs along the way. I'm your host, Jason Padolan, a 31st overall draft pick who played 41 NHL games, but thought he was destined for a thousand. Learn from my story and those of my guests. This is a hockey podcast about reaching your potential. Hello and welcome back to Up My Hockey for episode number 24. And today we tried something new. Uh, I brought the podcast into my Facebook parent group and we recorded live within the parent group. So this is a special group uh, for members only uh, that I talk about mindset and talk about the path and how to help these young athletes succeed and to navigate uh, this route of hockey that uh, all of us are so passionate about. And and I felt that it'd be amazing to bring the podcast recording inside the group so the members there can reach out, ask their own questions and participate live while I'm having the conversation. So I felt it went quite well, uh, really well, actually, so well that I'm going to do it again. So for any of you out there that uh, are hockey parents, and would like to take part in the in the group, please do. It's a Up My Hockey parent group on Facebook, and you can have access to some of these amazing guests that I've been speaking to and ask your questions personally and and uh, obviously get to hear the episode uh, before anyone else does. So a little bit about Mark. Mark Ferner uh, played junior for the Kamloops Blazers before he embarked on his 15-year professional career. Uh, Mark also spent time in the AHL, the IHL, the DEL over in Germany, and also the NHL with the Buffalo Sabres, the Washington Capitals. He was on the first ever Anaheim Mighty Ducks team and also the Detroit Red Wings. Uh, he had a geez, an extensive career and uh, seen seen a ton of different leagues and played with a ton of great players, which we get into. And And upon his retirement as a player, Mark went back to uh, to the WHL and with the startup uh, Vancouver Giants, was an assistant coach there, then went over to Kamloops, back to his, his uh, hometown with the Blazers. And he was assistant coach there and got his her- first uh, head coaching job in the WHL there. Uh, but Mark really stepped into some greatness when he went on to coach in the BC Junior League for the Vernon Vipers, uh, where he where he did something that a lot of coaches can't do, and that is go to three consecutive national championships, and and they won both or the first two, and in the third, they uh, you know they outshot the team forty to twenty, and it was one of those games where uh, this couldn't get a get a puck past the opposing goaltender, and and they uh, they couldn't win the third one in a row. But um, what a super, super cool accomplishment. And for those of you who don't know, uh, the Vernon Vipers and the BCHL, are that, that league is uh, one of the top producing uh, uh, leagues for athletes to the NCAA program. There's a ton of scholarships delivered there, so it's a really, really good hockey league. Uh, most recently, Mark served as a member uh, or as an amateur scout for the Buffalo Sabres. So now he's seen it as a player. He was seen it as a coach. And he also seen it on the other side, trying to identify talent. Um, I first met Mark after a trade to the Los Angeles Kings. Uh, the Kings initially assigned me to their IHL affiliate in Long Beach. And Mark uh, was playing there and was 11 years older than me, uh, a veteran and a leader for that team. And, and Mark, I remember him, you know, if, if we would have done this interview, he's one of those guys that I remembered uh, because he made me feel comfortable and part of things while I was there. He went out of his way uh, to walk across the room and to make sure that I knew where to go for lunch and wh- where to go on the road. And uh, it's those little gestures that, that make, make a man memorable uh, outside of the realm of hockey. And, 
you know, little did either of us know that uh, seven years later, Mark would be coaching a junior team in my hometown. Uh, And that's the way hockey works. It's a small world. And it reminds you constantly that being a good human matters, you know, because once your career is done, uh, all you have left are the memories and the relationships that you made along the way. Uh, So Mark, I'm very thankful that he he was able to join us today. I was super cool. It was super cool that we were able to do this live within the Facebook group. And Mark brings a treasure trove of experience with him as a guest. He has seen it all, knows what it takes to succeed in the sport, knows how how to communicate uh, the message to this younger generation, this this why generation. They don't want to know how. They want to know why we're doing it. And he talks about that in this episode. So um, we also hear a couple great stories from him. So this is an an interview uh, you don't want to miss. Thanks for tuning in. And uh, without further ado, I bring you... Mr. Mark Ferner. All right, welcome to Up My Hockey. This is episode number 24, and with us today is Mr. Mark Ferner. Fernsey, thanks so much for being here. Jason, thanks for having me. Uh, I look forward to this. I, I appreciate it very much. Thank you. Awesome. So we just talked a little bit offline that Mark is is not a tech savvy guy and, and doesn't uh, hasn't really participated in any of these things. So I'm really grateful that you're here, Mark. Um, we'll make this as pain painless as possible. I know you have a ton of stuff uh, just in our own conversations that we've had that that you know is valuable experiential stuff uh, from your time as a player, from your time as a coach, and from your time as being a being a scout with the Sabers as well. So um, I in in researching this uh, Fernsey. Uh, I went back and I, I saw your draft, 19, 1983, 10th rounder. Um, but which is interesting at the time because 10th round in, in that day and age equated to 194, which really isn't that you know low of a pick. It's just there's less teams, right? So there was so there was way more rounds. And uh, I just was curious if you knew who went 199 in that draft. Oh, 199. From my understanding, that was a pretty good draft. Um, I don't know. I'm gonna I'm gonna throw it out there, Jason. Rick Tockett. You know who? Uh, Hall of Famer, five picks lower than you. Dominic Hasek went 199, and uh, I saw that and I laughed. And then I saw uh, as well at 186 was the man who I played my first ever NHL shift against, lined up against him after after a face-off, uh, offside face-off, and it was Stu Grimson. So uh, you're uh, you're surrounded there. You're sandwiched in the middle of Stu Grimson and Dominic Hasek, and I thought that was a pretty cool cool scenario to be five picks higher than, than uh, Mr. Hasek. You have to use that the next uh, wow. party you go to. I think our careers went in different directions, that's for sure. But <laughs> you know what? Stu, Stu is a good friend of mine. Uh, I played with him a couple different places. He's a Kamloops kid. I grew up in Kamloops, so we played minor ball together, and um, you know, it was a pleasure playing with Stu. That's for sure. Oh, that's awesome! Yeah, I mean, you can imagine me at uh, 20 years old and my first, my first time <laughs> yeah. stepping on the ice, and I'm looking against. I mean, I'm not small, but like he was big. Like his hip is up ahead of mine, and I was just like, "Don't look at him! Don't look at him!" It was pretty, pretty funny way to start my NHL or my pro, my pro career, I guess. <laughs> a real gentleman, though, like for, for what he was on the ice. He he was just a, a true gentleman off the ice. I mean, very well spoken. I think he's a lawyer now. Um, but you know, back in those days, he was huge. I mean, I think six five possibly. I mean, now uh, every team's got a handful of those players. But um, you know, the one thing 
he brought that intangible of, of a little bit of intimidation, that's for sure. Oh, yeah, darn, darn straight he did. Um, you mentioned Kamloops. So that'd be a great place to start. You know, I, mean, I, want, I want to start with you and, and your career. And, and it started in Kamloops with uh, with the Blazers. Or, I mean, they were called the Junior Oilers, but, you know, the, the Blazers. And, and so is that is that that was where you grew up that was where like the hockey eyes of, of that junior team were on you and that gave that gave you an opportunity to play in your hometown uh not necessarily to be honest with you um i was originally back then there was no draft right so it was just your 50 man list so i was listed by regina uh and there was a handful of us that went from regina to kamloops uh bill of forge came in and, and was our head coach for two years with the kamloops oilers which was owned by the edmonton oilers at the time um so I, I played as a 17-year-old in, in Kamloops. I was traded back to Kamloops. Uh, and then two years later, obviously, it transitioned into the Kamloops Blazers where Ken Hitchcock came in and out of midget hockey out of Edmonton. Uh, and I had the opportunity and pleasure of playing for Hitch for the one year there too. Interesting. Well, so that was uh, that was the start. Well, maybe, I don't know how, the, how your year went that year with Hitch, but I mean, he ended up having some powerhouses there and really, you know, put his name on the map with coaching Robbie Brown and Scott Niedemeyer and uh, Shazowski and, and, and that whole crew uh, were, what was when he, when he arrived on the scene, could you see that there was maybe going to be some, some big things for him in the future? We, we, the previous year we had gone to the Memorial cup um, and, and, you know, Rest his soul, Bill LaForge. He he was a he was an old school coach for sure. Um, and then we had this big jolly guy coming in, Ken Hitchcock, and and we thought we had died and gone to heaven uh, with with that mentality. But again, back then there was no draft. Uh, the one thing that re- they, they had a great scouting staff. I mean, um, Stu McGregor was there, Bob Brown was there, uh, Hitch was there, Donnie Hay had come in. Uh, but the the one advantage that they did have was they they. Kamloops held the Kibbit tournament, the Bantam tournament, which was one of the better ones in North America. So, you know, I, I think they got Shane Doan out of there. I think they got Jerome McGinley out of there. I mean, they had Daryl Sador. Uh, and the, the biggest thing I could see from, from that organization is Hitch held them accountable, but the culture was was phenomenal. And and I think they went back-to-back Memorial Cups. Maybe they even went three times. But um, that was certainly a, a heyday for the Kamloops Blazers back then. Right. So, yeah, I mean, that's, uh, I mean, and cause Hitch wasn't recognized as the pushover in the NHL. He was actually recognized as a little bit of a, of a hard case in, in some points, but I mean, for, for you and then for the listeners too, that aren't familiar with Ken Hitchcock, Ken Hitchcock was a huge man, um, back in the day of junior. I remember going to some of the junior camps as a young man and I mean, he, he couldn't honestly tie his skates. You could barely see him. Um, so yeah. I mean, that was, was he that was he at that that size when he when he when he first got hired there when you yeah, were there? he was big he he was a big man um and his heart was just as big um you know back then there there wasn't what you would call a player's coach but he certainly was a player's coach uh, to us and it's real funny that you know i had the opportunity to coach in counts for a while too um but they have all their photos there and, and year one you saw Hitch with a great big smile on his face, but every year that those photos were taken, that smile slowly, slowly went away. And, and um, you know, up to this day, Hitch is still a good friend of mine. And, um, you know, he did tremendous things with it, with his coaching, uh, coaching career for sure. Right. Yeah. That's, uh, well, I mean, that's the, that's the evolution, right? You I mean, you start out one way and I'm sure you experienced that not only as a player, but then as a coach too, you got to find what your identity is and, and how you fit into the whole scheme of things. Plus, plus you learn what works and what doesn't. Um, 
from from those Kamloops days, Fernsey. So, what? How did how did that transition into pro work for you? Like, for, for it's a big step for a lot of guys. Like, do you remember your first NHL camp? Do you remember those those first games yeah. in the AHL? I, I do. Um, uh, my first training camp was, believe it or not, was in Lake Placid, uh, just a few years after Miracle on Ice. Um, and Richard Haidu, uh was a second-round pick to Buffalo, and he, he had played in Camos at, as well. Uh, ended up getting traded to Victoria, but I remember going to training camp. I mean, what was I, six foot, 170 pounds, and guys like um, Jerry Korab and Gilbert Perot, and uh, these guys were still there, and, and the one thing that just blew my mind is Gilbert Perot was 230 pounds. Um, but it was all legs and, and rear end. So here we are trying to put weight on and, and you know, the veteran players are, are trying to take weight off. But it, it was a different time back then for sure. Uh, not a lot of testing. We we had to run around the lake a couple of times during that training camp. But it was certainly a thrill for, for me and, and I'm sure all the young players to – just to see these these types of players um, at training camp. Yeah, and that was a big name. Gilbert Perot. I actually saw that he was part of that organization towards the tail end of his career. But uh, you know, a magnificent goal scorer and a great player in his in his own right. And interesting enough, um, Lake Placid. You mentioned I, I when I was with the Islanders, we had our training camp in Lake Placid. And that was the year of nine eleven. So we had just left oh, wow. the city. Uh, like I think it was the day before, if I remember correctly, and we were on the ice, and that was when, like, we got I got back from a morning skate, and it was all over the TV, and like the rest of camp was a blur. I mean, like we we finished camp, but it was it was crazy. So it's interesting we have we have that in common of having an NHL training camp in Lake Placid. Um, do you remember your first your first uh, like exhibition game, or is there any 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 takeaways from from uh, even like a camp where? Where you had a, where you had an aha moment that oh this is a little different than uh, than the Blazers. Well, again, back back in the eighties, it was a little bit different. Um, you know, there was just as much emphasis on big tough guys as there was nowadays with uh, with speed and skill. I mean, Lindy Ruff was there. Um, you know, the nicknames back back in those days were were tremendous: King Kong, Korab, uh, Boxcar, Hospodar. <laughs> But, you know, it was just, it was different. Um, I remember a training camp and, and you never wanted to be seen in, in the training room, right? That, that was just a, a taboo. And I remember uh, we were scrimmaging and and um, Ed Hospital was coming across the middle. I thought, you know, here's me, 170 pounds would step up on him. And he saw me at the last minute and threw his elbow out and caught me pretty good in the jaw. But um, you know, I couldn't, I think I ate soup for the next, uh, two weeks, but I didn't want to say anything. So it was just a, a different time back then. Uh, it yeah. really was. So, um, it, it certainly was an eye opener. Obviously didn't play in Buffalo that year, went down to Rochester and, um, we had a young group down there, but uh, my first shift as a pro in the, in the, in the minors, I believe it or not, I started the game for whatever reason. John Van Boxner was the coach. Won the puck or won the face off to my partner. He went D to D to me, and I thought, oh gee, I can I can find that seam uh, cross. I sure enough picked off uh, breakaway goal. So that that was my introduction to to pro <laughs> hockey. I was minus one in about fifteen seconds. <laughs> oh my goodness! Welcome to the pros, kid. Yeah, no that's kidding. Wild. I love that story. And interesting, you mentioned boxy because that's where you, we mean we played with uh, under him in, in yeah. Long Beach. So it's, I mean, the hockey world's like that, right? He must have probably saw something in you there and ended up playing for him again. You mentioned the training room, and I just want to differentiate because I think for a lot of people listening now, the training room would mean like 
the workout room, but you were spe- you were mentioning yeah, like you didn't want to be on a trainer's table, like you didn't want to be hurt, like you were going to avoid that at all costs. Hundred percent. I mean, the, the yeah. GM would come in and um, he, he would poke his head in the room just to see who was in there. I mean, nowadays it, it's a, it's a social place. Um, that's where everyone kind of gathers. And um, but back then it was you you try to avoid that room as much as possible. Um, you know, because it again the decisions were being made who's going where. And, um, you know, it, it was all about character as it is now, but, um, it was just different times for sure. Yeah, exactly. And, and I, I would like to talk about the flip side of that because you said it was, is it was an era, uh, the era was just kind of starting to shift as far as like the, the physical realm of hockey, right. And, and what, what you can do with your body away from the rink, that's going to make you a better hockey player on the ice. Um, was, was the weight room visited by many people then? Uh, do you remember, was there guys that were kind of a little ahead of their time or was that also a place that was a little bit avoided? Um, uh, a little bit, um, you know, especially in the minors when I was there, we, our boxy actually built a weight room for us and us being s- smart, Alex, we put a dartboard down there. Um, but guys would go to work out. Obviously we had, we had bikes, but not, not like today. I mean, the games evolved so much. I mean, it's a, it's a 12 months of the year thing where, um, you know, you'd go to training camp. The veterans would go to training camp to get in shape. That's, that's what it was. Uh, make sure you bring your golf clubs and, you know, and it was just, it was different, different for sure. Right. I remember talking to Tom Laidlaw, who was, you know, a little bit before, but from a similar era. And, and he said, you know, he did take his physical, he was a little bit ahead of the curve with that. And he, he remembers that guys just weren't happy with him at all. Right. And once the, <laughs> once the, once the younger guys started coming in a little bit more in shape, right. The older guys weren't happy about it. Cause that just wasn't the culture at the time. Right. They, they liked their summers off and wanted to come in and get in shape, but that's obviously changed now. Um, it's, it's pretty much a 12 month of a, of a year job for, for these guys. Um, when you, when you made that step and you said you're minus one, your first shift, um, you know, I also noticed that your penalty minutes went up a lot the next year. Like, were you trying to find a way to to play there, or I mean, what what, what do, you, do you remember what that was like, like finding your way in the league, and what type of were you a one or two guy, were you a five six guy, and you know to keep yourself in the lineup? What what did you have to do there to to make that work? Well, I again, we were a young hockey team uh, in Rochester, and I think that's just the way the the Sabres organization was going. I think we had like fifteen rookies at the time, and. And again, going into places like Hershey back then where they had a veteran group and they were big and it was still the broad street bullies up in, in, um, in Philadelphia. And they, they mirrored that in, in, um, in Hershey as well. So it was just, you, you basically at times had no choice, not that, you know, guys would shy away from it. It was just, it was a real physical era back then. And, and, um, that's just the way it was. It was, there was a tremendous amount of respect though. That's the one thing that I can, I can say like no one really took advantage of anybody, but at the same time, there were certain buildings that you're going into and you know, it's going to hit the fan um, and you got to be prepared. So um, it was just, that was just the way the game was played. Right. Was there a part of that for you on a personal level? Uh, I'm, I, and I'll just maybe tell, share a little bit with myself first. Like I played in Penticton at 15 years old in, in junior A, right in the BC, BCHL. And, and so that was the first time where, a, you know, I could get in a fight necessarily, yeah. right? And I got in a couple that year. It wasn't that I loved it, but it was also part of sort of the culture to a little bit of a pr- proving ground, right? That you, that you would do this. And then the next year in Spokane, I actually found myself, I had like 15 fights as a 16 year old. And again, not necessarily because I liked it, but more just 
to try to establish yourself that this is something that you would do and you'd stand up for a teammate and, uh, you know, and, and that you were one of the boys, I guess, essentially, like, did you, did you find yourself having to maybe change your, your personality or what you would normally do because of the sport you were playing? Um, you know, I think that stuff gets ingrained into you at, at a young age. I do. I mean, obviously growing up in, in Kamloops and we had a, a real hard-nosed minor hockey coach in Joe Kennett, uh, who coached junior A hockey way back when. And then, and then uh, again, Bill LaForge uh, was notorious for that. So um, I think that really prepared you for what was going to come down the, the, the pipe here a little bit. And it was just the way it was. I mean, certainly your personality. And I, I think a lot of kids or a lot of people would, would play to their character, you know, and, and sometimes my mouth would get my, myself into a little bit more trouble than it should have. But at the same time, um, you know, you, it, it's a team game and, and you're on one side you're and obviously the uh, 20 guys are on the other. So um, you were, you had to be prepared to go to war every night. Yeah. Do you, do you find now that you've, you've gone through it as a player, uh, you went, you've gone through it as a coach and now there's a, you know, there's a different style being played again now, you know, as you, as you watch as a scout this past season, I lamented a, a little bit. I, I went to a game in Vancouver, I think it was two years ago now with my boys and I, and I was just kind of getting back into really being a hockey fan and a part of the game again. Right. I was watching a little bit, but you know, I was busy with business and everything else. And so we went to this game for the Canucks and it was the third period. And I looked over at my wife and I said, has there been a hit yet tonight? You know, like there, there, there wasn't a body check. Like there, there wasn't an ounce of physicality in the game at all. And then I started to watch a little bit more, and, and it was, I mean, it really stuck out to me. I mean, you can take a puck off the half wall, and you, these guys have no fear of getting hit, standing in front of the net. No one's cross-checking or slashing or anything, right? And I was like, it kind of made me feel sad because that was a part of the game that I really took pride in on a personal level that I was, I was able to do that, those things. You know, I mean, I was able to stand in front of the net and take the hit. I was able to drop the gloves or get the puck out on the half wall. You know I mean, it was something that I took pride in and now it kind of looked like that was lost in the game a little bit. I don't know. Like, do you have your thoughts on that as a coach and a player? Uh, a little bit. I, I would imagine that it's nearly or not nearly as physical. Um, you know, and I think where it, it turned in, this is just my opinion. Um, you know, they're, they're so much bigger. They're so much faster. You know, the boards are, you know, the glass nowadays, I mean, it's everything, the, the equipment's bigger and, and harder, but the obstruction, when they put obstruction in the game, you know, obviously you thought the game was going to pick up and get faster, which it did. Um, but taking advantage of players, like the, there were some pretty nasty hits about 10 years ago. And it, it's so ironic with, with this, um, this virus that's going on and, and sports has been shut down. So as you know, Jason, TSN and, and Sportnet been playing some old, NHL games. You know, I was watching Edmonton and, and, and Calgary play. I think it had to be from the 80s. And it was barbaric. It, it really was. I mean, it wasn't as fast as today, but um, there was a tremendous amount of respect. But it was a real physical, hard, you know, rep standing right there, guys getting two-handed. So, you know, the game's evolved. It, it really has. I mean, obviously, we're getting more and more Europeans over here, and rightfully so. Obviously, they're, they're very talented players. But you know, you just don't have that physicality and, and they're, or even the fighting for that matter. I mean, very rarely do you, do you have 
multiple fights in a game. Um, and you just see, unfortunately for those types of players, if, if that's how they're making their living, they're, they're getting weeded out of the game a little bit. Yeah, hundred percent. And I think there's a bunch of traditionalists that, that think that that's sad. I mean, I'm not really sure where I stand. I, I think that we could all probably agree. And, you know, however many years there, there won't be fighting in hockey at some point. I, I think that's, that's coming at the NHL level. I mean, BCHL has just made a rule this year, you know, making it a little bit harder to fight and, and and so as it comes up from the junior leagues right into the NHL, I think it it will be, it will be gone. Um, but you know, I, I think the fighting is neither here nor there. Although I do think it's a pretty relevant component, and and I'd like to see it stay. But for me, I think the playoffs is still where we get that edge, you know. And it's and it's that edge that I guess that I'm talking about is where you know you gotta be willing to pay the price to make a play, you know, and that's, that's the old adage that coaches have been saying forever. But again, watching that game in the NHL, it seemed like you didn't have to pay the price to make the play. You just had to be skilled and maybe be quick, but you didn't have to worry about getting ran over. You didn't have to worry about that ice bag, you know? And, and I think in the playoff, we, we still see that. And I think that's the best part of the game for sure. Well, and and I agree. I mean, I, I'm not going to say that the NHL is a copycat league, but you know, St. Louis, they go from, from last to first and wins the Stanley cup. And they were big, they were big and physical. Their back end was big. They were hard. They defended real hard. Um, But, but I think the biggest difference is um, during the regular season, you'll, you'll play one, one team. And then you'll move on. You'll play another team, or in the playoffs, you you possibly could be playing the same team for seven games in a row, and that's where it becomes hard. You know, uh, there's no stone unturned anymore. With the, the coaching is is outstanding. The the way technology is, the video and all that stuff. So that all gets looked after. And and the reality is now now it comes down to you know again I, I mentioned a little bit earlier the guys that you want to go to war with. So it's a lot of character um, is, is put into the game and, you know, you, you need good goaltending, you need good defense and you need good luck to win. Um, and I think uh, St. Louis got it all last year. Yeah. And I mean, I agree. And, and if you, and if you go back to the teams that, that surface to the top, there's a lot of grit in that lineup. You know, there's a, there's, it, it's not a bunch of first line power play guys all the time. Right. You I mean, like you think, you think Boston, you think Washington when they won, even the Pittsburgh teams, right. I mean, there's, there's some grit in there. And, and I guess, you I mean, you're having some discussions with some of the play, people in the game that are trying to design these teams. Um, they're very cognizant of the fact that, you know what, what wins in the regular season isn't what necessarily wins in the playoffs. But yet if you design your team strictly around what wins in the playoffs, you might not even get to the dance in the first place. You know, so That's a great point. Um, you know, obviously you need to be skilled enough to get there, but you need to be hard enough to survive that, that, that war, that battle. I mean, and it's hard. It's, it's 10 weeks of, of playoffs that, you're playing every second night um, and you get worn down. And, and you, as you know, Jason, better than anyone, I mean, injuries are part of the game. Um, and it's just who, who's prepared to do the things that other players aren't prepared to do to give yourself a chance to win. I mean, and, and that's why they say it's the hardest cup to win, uh, hardest championship to win just because of the, the regular season and the playoffs. So, you know, I, I have the utmost respect for, for all those players that, um, if I can survive that, that's for sure. No doubt. Did you ever have any, um, you said you, you went to the Memorial cup there with, with Kamloops. Did you, did, did you get, um, into the Calder at all with, uh, in, in the minors? You, I, w- I was fortunate to be honest with you. Um, we went to Memorial cup, uh, with Kamloops and that's the year actually, uh, Mary Lemieux was there. 
um, yeah, that, that was his draft year as well. And but ironically, he wasn't the best player there. Uh, Adam Creighton, uh, who was Buffalo first round pick, uh, won the MVP of that uh, out of Ottawa, out of Ottawa, I believe. But um, you know, getting back to your point, I, I was fortunate. Um, played four years in Rochester and went to. Washington's um, farm team uh, in Baltimore and then ended up getting traded to, to St. John's and, and we ended up going to the Calder Cup there. Uh, Joe Quinville and, and Mark Crawford were our coaches. Um, so I got traded at the deadline. Uh, then the next year I got picked up um, in the expansion draft to Ottawa. Um, blew my knee out in training camp. Didn't play till December. Um, ended up going down to New Haven and and again, an expansion team in the minors. We, we weren't a very good hockey team. And my agent ended up getting me traded out to um, San Diego, uh, of all places, in the International League at the time, where Rick Dudley was the coach. And we ended up going to Turner Cup that year. Um, I had an opportunity to go to um, the Stanley Cup with Detroit. Stu Grimson and I got traded out of Anaheim. And I went to the Stanley Cup and lost four straight to um, New Jersey. Um, and, and, and again, had two, two other opportunities to go to the Turner cup, one in Orlando and one back in long beach. So, um, you know, we had, I had a pretty good stretch there from 91 to 97 when I had the opportunity to go to five, five, uh, five finals. That's unbelievable. And championships or a runner up? Uh, we were runner up. Yeah. Um, obviously didn't win the Memorial cup. We lost to, um, who was at Sherbrooke in uh, St. John's and uh, Fort Wayne in San Diego. So obviously uh, New Jersey and Detroit, uh, Detroit in the eye, I believe yeah. it was Orlando. And then um, I think it would have been Houston um, in the Turner cup in, in the last year in, in Long Beach, but then as a coach, had an opportunity to go to three World Bank Cups, which was yeah. I know I want to get there for sure. Uh, We we share that as well. I I got to three three finals: uh, one in the DEL, one in the Calder Cup uh, with Bridgeport, and then also with uh, with the Chiefs. And 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 ironically, as a Black Ace with with the Panthers, and we got swept up by by Colorado, so got to four different championship finals, but uh, was never able to raise the hardware either. And that's a long long way to go to to not be able to do it, but. you definitely learn a hell of a lot along the way. Oh. And I think that the margin for error there is like, like you said, there's a, there's a lot that goes into it and um, you know, you can break it down, but you're, you're close, man. And, and, and those teams, you remember those guys in those teams too, because you've won so many battles together and you stuck together for so long that it's a very memorable part of the, the playing experience as, and as a coach, I'm sure. Well, and you know, I was, I was fortunate. I had great coaches um, throughout my whole career. Uh, but the one thing that really made me realize when when Stu and I got Stu Grimson and I got traded to uh, Detroit from uh, from Anaheim, I'm thinking to myself, well, what am I doing in this deal? Like, let's just be honest. We know why Stu's going, right? They they had Iserman, they had um, Coffee, they had um, Fedorov. They, I mean, that team was outstanding, and Mark Howe was there. But the one th- the one thing that I really enjoyed, obviously, I didn't play in the playoffs there. But like you said, being a black ace and you practice with them and you're a part of it, and they, they certainly made you feel part of it, um, you know, watching Steve Eiserman run that hockey team. Um, and that's the first time I saw an NHL team really um, dedicate themselves off the ice. But but the one that, that led the group there was uh, Scotty Bowman and, and just taking everything in from him. Um, you know, like you said, you, you learn so much on, on – 
and at that point, I knew at some point I wanted to be a coach too. So, you know, I observed so much from from all the coaches that I've had, and 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 once you know the coach or the playing career ended, you you just try to instill a little bit of everything. So, it was very very rewarding, even though that we didn't win. Yeah, wasn't he? Um, he's an encyclopedia. I'm talking about Scott Scotty now. Like when anytime I've heard him speak, and I've heard him speak live a couple times, and and. I mean, I, I, I can't fact check him, but he sounds like he remembers like 1963 oh. in the second period of this game, like it, like it just happened. You know what I mean? And it sounds it's, his memory just seems incredible. You know where he? It just it and it blew my mind. It was not so much faces and names; it was numbers for him. He knew everybody. If you said who's number nine off Notre Dame University. He would tell you who it is. So that's how his mind worked. Um, and it was all about numbers. Um, and obviously, you know, I'm, I'm not sure how many Stanley Cups he has, but he has more than any other coach. And, and there is a reason for it, for sure. He was he was really enjoyable to be around, very friendly. You didn't see him a whole, whole bunch, though. You would see him, he would step on the ice. Um, and as soon as practice was over, he was gone. And you never really saw him. But I have a funny story. My, my very first skate with Detroit, and I'm, I'm in the room, and I'm like, what the heck is going on here? So, um, And they, they were very friendly, very you know, welcoming. And I step on the ice, and, and here's Paul Coffey buzzing around the ice. And he'd come up and you know, say what he needed to say to me. So it's him and I kind of skating around. And, and sure enough, you know, I'm looking at him. He's looking at me. We run right into Scotty Bowman and knock him down. But, but Paul took off. <laughs> and, and here I am, just got there, standing over Scotty Bowman. And, and fortunately for me, uh, when I got drafted by Buffalo, Scotty was a coach there as well. So, you know, what, what a great welcoming to Detroit. You know, Joe Lewis Arena, and, and here's a new guy that, that he thinks, and it wasn't me, trust me, uh, that uh, knocked Scotty Bowman over on the ice. And then uh, Terry Karkner came up to me later and goes, that's okay, Mark. I ran him over last year and broke a rib. So, um <laughs> You know, that, that was pretty interesting. And, and oh my goodness! Just leave it at that. Um, I got to rewind a little bit just because, for my personal reasons, one being Mario Lemieux, you having a chance to play against him in the Memorial Cup, like he was, he was my guy growing up, right? Like that was the guy that, if he existed now, and I was a young guy, like I would be glued to YouTube every day and watching his stuff. Like I, I absorbed everything that he could do. He was my hero. Like what was. You said he wasn't the best player there, but was he? You must have saw how special he was. Well, I, I shouldn't say he wasn't the best player there. He didn't win the MVP. I mean, Ottawa won the cup that year, and, and Adam Creighton was on that team, so he got the MVP. But I remember <laughs> there was a shift that, and, and Gordy Mark was my D partner who played in New Jersey a little bit. Big, big man. Um, and obviously not as big as Mario, but I'm standing in front of the net, and Mario is turning Gordy Mark into a pretzel in the corner. Like it was. I'm just standing going, thank goodness that's not me in there. But he, there's no question that he – you knew he was going to be great. Uh, he had everything. He was big. He could skate. He was skilled. He could, you know, hold guys off. Um, you know, he was one of – you know, you'd have to argue one of the best players to ever play the game, obviously. I'm not sure where he ranks, but he's got to be up there. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, 
And just to mention for everyone listening here on the podcast, this is our first live broadcast. So right now we're broadcasting live within my uh, parent group on Facebook. It's called Up My Hockey Parent Group. So we're live in there and and we have parents from all over North America uh, as a part of this group. And and some of which are from uh, Saint, from Newfoundland because you know I spent some time there as well. I'm not sure if you knew that, uh, Mark, yeah, two, yeah. two and a half years there in Newfoundland. So we do have somebody... Uh, commenting saying i remember m- when mark played for the leafs it was my first year in the front office and uh, they're they're really uh, really excited that you that you're on today do you do you have any special memories from your time in the rock i know for me personally it was uh, it really was a special time i mean i had personal success there i love the people I, I just thought the 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 island itself was like un unlike any other part of canada that i'd been to and uh and yeah, I mean, I just, I really did treasure my time there. Played in all parts of North America, as did you. And, and that just, my time in St. John's really stands out for me. I, I echo that 100%, Jason. I, I, had, I was traded from Baltimore, Maryland. And I think it was, oh, shoot, plus 50 uh, the day I got traded. Uh, I woke up in St. John's and it was minus 40. Um, but I, I don't think I've met friendlier people in the world. Um, my, my wife had, had come a little bit later. She stayed in Baltimore until I got settled and they put me up in a, a bed and breakfast. And, and I just remember us going on the road trips and we had a great team. We ended up going to the Calder cup final and, um, or, you know, Calder cup final. Um, but I'd come home from road trips and my wife would, she'd walk down to, to the wharf and buy lobsters right off, right off the boat. And it, we, we played in the old rink then. Uh, yeah, me too. So, yeah. And it was just, uh, my wife and I always say that we, we would love to go back in the summer because uh, we had just a, a, a terrific time there. Unfortunately, we we lost in, in seven games. And, and Jason, that, that series was – we had home ice advantage. We lost in seven. We lost four games at home. Oh. We won three on the road and we lost four at home, which I don't know if that's ever happened. Um, I don't know if it would happen, especially in that rink, like you say. That yeah. rink was such an advantageous place to play as a, as a, you know, as a Leaf because it was a little box, you know, like there was the fans were right on top of you, yeah. and it was yeah. it was a pretty good home rink to have. It was crazy. It, I, I, again, it was that that was really a tough pill to swallow because it was a tremendous team, um, talent wise, but but so close off the ice too, and I, I think. You know the, the teams that you've had success with as a player. The, that's the one common thread that you had good people with within that organization. And you know, Joe Quinville was was still a player coach back then. Believe it or not, um, you know he still wore his plastic skates, and guys would tease him that he was the fastest guy in plastic because he was the only one that wore plastic. Uh, and then Mark Crawford went on to to Vancouver, and, and obviously Joel has had a, a great career as a coach as well. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, I always have a warm spot in my heart, and I mean, I and I agree with you too. I mean, I got the three little boys now, and my wife, who's who's an American uh, citizen, and 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 I just, I mean, anyone I talk to, I'm like, especially Canadians, like Canadians need to go to that island, need to go to Newfoundland. It's the people, the way they speak, oh. um, dialect, the culture, like everything about it. Like they're they're obviously, I mean, we're all Canadians, but it's just like you're in a different spot, and there's something special about it. And uh, and I want to go back in the summer too and see what George Street's like in the summer, and when the golf courses are open, and 
and all that great stuff. But um, yeah, anyways, I, I really, really do love the people there and I appreciate everyone from there that's, that's listening. And we got a pretty good fan base from there with the, with the podcast. So yeah, terrific place. Um, yeah. And I know, uh, I think, well, you might know the name um, Greensleeves. Oh yeah. And, and we became real good friends with the owner at the time. Um, but I, I heard it burnt down and they, um, we built it back up, but we had a we had a couple um, we had a couple of players. One in particular that that was from uh, Cornerbrook, Newfoundland. Uh, Todd Gillingham also played there, so you know he was certainly a fan favorite. And uh, but the, the, like you said, the dialect and and trying to understand them. Like I didn't have a vehicle there; it wasn't a very big place. But it, it seemed like I had my own personal cab driver. His name was Patty, and probably for the first month, I had no idea what he was talking about. Um, <laughs> You know, but but I did get screeched in. I'm not sure if you did. Um, so I, I do have that certificate of being screeched in at, at green sleeves, and I'll never forget. Oh my gosh! Oh, you're making me smile. Like that's that's uh, first of all, Todd Gillingham makes me smile because I played with him <laughs> in St. John's too. I mean, two different eras, though. I think he must have been a couple of different places before before that or in between. And then I played with him there with Bird Dog. What was, was there yeah. then? You know, yeah. rest rest his soul, and. Um, and yeah, we we had a we had a fun we had a fun group there, and I did get screeched in as well. Um, that which was funny about that is I didn't get screeched in there when I was with the team, but I did coming back on a road trip, and I was with um, the Bridgeport Sound Taggers. And oh my goodness, what a story that is! I don't know if I should tell it, but uh, Dave Roach got traded that that night, and I wasn't in the lineup. Dave Roach, yeah. yeah, so Roachy got traded from the Rock. I wasn't in the lineup because I was hurt. So you can imagine me after playing there for two years, not in the game. Right. And like, just completely being like the ringleader for the team of like master of ceremonies, getting everyone set up with where they can go after. And, and, uh, we got Rochi home, uh, real late the one night and, uh, and he got screeched in. I got screeched in yesterday. I was barbecuing with the hat that I had, like one of those old <laughs> Norwester hats. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I still have it from that, from that ceremony. So for any of you listeners that don't know what screeched in is you, um, you should look it up, but there's, there's some singing involved. There's a shot of screech involved, which is a liquor that's native out there. And, and you also have to, uh, kiss a dead fish. So, uh, a it's cod quite- and, and you have to have, the, the newfie steak a piece of bologna yeah and if you get the song wrong that's the kicker if you get the song wrong you gotta do it all over again and it's <laughs> not an easy song to remember so <laughs> the guys in st john's were nice enough to warn me about it and they trust me i practiced and practiced and and uh, i think it took me two times to get it but pretty proud of that certificate that i have from from green sleeves yeah for sure green sleeves. yeah that's still there i know that family real well we were we were we were frequenters of Turkey Joe's. Um, I mean, there were so many places there. I can't remember the name of the place we got screeched in at, but yeah, I might as well finish telling the rest of the story. I don't think Roach you would mind because it's, it's, it's pretty tame, <laughs> but uh, I think you'll get a chuckle of us with the listeners. So, so Roachy was like, he was leaving the next day. Like I said, he got traded. So the boys gave him the send off. It was after the game. Um, I was the one that was kind of in charge of, I guess, you know, getting him home. And he was having a real good old time. And as we all know, Roachy was a big, big boy. And uh, he just got screeched in, and the and the song was uh, Alabama was playing right before we were leaving the bar. This is like you know two thirty probably in the morning, right three in the morning, and uh, and you're it, still it, a lineup, was, right? Yeah, you're still a lineup exactly. <laughs> the song was if you're going to play in Texas, you got to have a fiddle in the band, right? Uh, so that's that's what was playing in in the bar when we were leaving, and so on the way home, Rochi just keeps singing. The fiddling ain't done, he's saying. He goes, the fiddling ain't done, Podsy. The fiddling ain't done. So he's he's telling me this the whole way home, right? He's using the whole sidewalk to get back to the hotel, and uh, 
and then when we get to the hotel, I'm like, well, Rochi, what, what room are you in? And he's like, you know, 242, 242. And, uh, so I'm like, all right, your shirt's 242. He's like, yeah, 242, Posse. Fiddling ain't done. The fiddling ain't done. He's telling me, right. And in, in, in the elevator. And so we go, we go, I, I get him to 242, knock on the door, big hotel, right? I mean, this was the new rank now at this time, the, the one okay. that's connected like with the walkway and the whole nine yards. It's our head coach that answers the door. He's got tidy what Steve Sterling. He's got, I didn't even know he had fake teeth. He's got his teeth out. His white hair is like up to here. He's got his tidy whitey underwear on. <laughs> I don't know who was more shocked, like him to see me or me to see him. Meanwhile, Rochi's like leaning on the on the hallway uh, wall beside me, going, fiddling ain't done, Pachi. The fiddling. Well, it's done now. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. Yeah, he had his numbers backwards. It was like 422 or something. Anyways, his roommate was Ray Schultz. And oh my God, that's one of the stories that I just crack up with every time I remember that one. But anyways, lots of good stories from Newfoundland. Um, let's talk about you a little bit with um, with the Ducks. I mean, because that was their that was their first ever year, correct? And that was your, you know, that was your that was your time in the show. I mean, you, you had some games with some other teams, like similar to me, but like you were a regular that year. You traveled with that team. You played 50 games. Um, how did you end up there and what was that experience like? Um, again, I think Ottawa came in the, the previous year. Um, so there, there had to be another expansion draft. And I'd played down in San Diego and it was had a, a decent, I guess, playoff. But it, it was, I don't know the whole story, Jason, but something had happened with the draft and they only um obviously i was exposed to it um and there was only one other defenseman within the organization that that was exposed so i ended up getting picked up by by anaheim and i'm thinking okay well here we go again but their their minor league team was in san diego and i thought well i could be playing in the minors in worse places and you know fortunately for me i ended up playing there for for a year and a half in anaheim uh the second year i believe was the lockout year um, and what a great organization. I mean, my God, they, they treated us um, fabulously, the families. And I, I think if you ask any of the, the players or the wives or girlfriends that were, were with um, their spouse saying that that could be one of the, the, the favorite places that they played because uh, at the time it was owned by, by Disney and, and they just treated us like gold. So um, Second year was lockout year. Went down to San Diego, came back up, and then ended up getting traded to Detroit. But um, great memories in Anaheim as well. But was that? I mean, as far as being an NHLer, I mean, like, so you're 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 around the minors, right? You're 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 running that circuit. I mean, as I experienced that, I mean, the whole time you you ended up getting to Anaheim there as a, as a 27 year old. You'd had you'd had some games in the NHL with with Washington and with Buffalo, but the majority of your time was spent in the minor leagues, right? Yeah. So now you're. Now you've made that jump. You made that team, and you're doing the tour there. Like, did you, did you feel at the time like it was a tour? Or did you feel like I can play here, and I'm, I'm, I'm this is now I'm establishing myself. Um, you know, you're 27. And I've gone to probably I don't know how many pro camps already. You know, 12, 10, maybe. I'm not even quite sure, but it was always it always seemed to be the same answer. You know, you in the training camp, you go see the GM and you go see the coach and thanks very much, but we're going to send you down. And, and that was different. Uh, I remember going into Ron Wilson's uh, office. He was a coach and said, Mark, you know what? Why don't you go find a place? I'm like, really? <laughs> so it, that I'll never forget that as well. So again, a, a young team. And actually we, 
we had a pretty good group. I think we won 26 games that year, something like that. So uh, other than, um, um, you know, a few, obviously, other expansion teams, that was, I think, second at the time. And, again, it was just a real close-knit team. We, di we didn't have a lot of real NHLers, per se. Uh, Stu Grimson was there. Um, God rest his soul. Todd Ewing, who's both of those good friends of mine. Randy Lattisore, uh, D.U. Bear. Um, you know, Paul Career wasn't there yet. Uh, he, he was drafted the, the following year. And the, and the rest of them were kind of in the same boat as I was up and down in the minors. Um, Gary Volk came from Vancouver. But, um, again, we just went out and played, right? I mean, obviously – we, we had a, a ton of fun doing it, but at the same time, we just found ways to, to get some, some victories. So, you know, again, playing that many years, seven years, I believe, would have been in the minors uh, and then get an opportunity to be, um, um, you know, playing in Anaheim for, for an expansion team in California was, was certainly a great time. Right. Did anyone have an impact on you throughout your time, whether in the minors or in the NHL, as far as, uh, you know, an older guy that maybe took you under his wing or kind of showed you, made you feel comfortable, you know, made a difference for you in, in any, in any scenario? Um, I remember my first training camp in Buffalo, um, Larry Playfer of all people, um, we'd always go out for lunch. Uh, he'd always make sure that, um, you know, I was kind of following along. Uh, and Larry was a good friend of my, my brothers who played. Larry played out in, in, in Langley for the Langley Lords, I believe, way back when. And he had spent some time at my parents' house at the time. So um, those older guys, so like Clark Gillies, um, would always make sure that they'd bring the young guys around. Lindy Ruff, uh, not only there in Buffalo, but also played with them in, in San Diego. But, you know, that's the one thing I think um, – you'll concur, Jason, that those older players played for a long time, not because they were just great players. They were great people. Um, and, and they knew what it meant, regardless of if you were a guy going up and down, you were in the organization up and down from the minors to, to the NHL. Um, but they made you feel like family. Um, so I, I was, I was fortunate. I had a ton of them, uh, a lot of influential people as far as coaches as well. I mean, I, I always tried to pride myself on being a good teammate. Um, um, I always try to get along with, with, with everybody, but that sometimes that never happens either. But, you know, there are so many and, and probably too many to, to mention. Right. Well, I'm going to turn that. I mean, I think that's amazing what you just said there. And I'm going to turn that back at you because I remember, and you probably don't, but when we played together in, in Long Beach, like we, Mark and I had a, had a, for those listening, Mark and I had whatever it was, eight games I was there, and plus the playoffs, um, when I got traded from Toronto to L.A. So I got traded for Yannick Perot, uh, was having a career year for myself personally, had like 42 in, in St. John's and, and got traded in this deal. And, and L.A. had me start in, in the IHL. It was I found out later it was a contract thing. I had a, I had a one-way deletion clause at 40 games. So they ended up they ended up send, keeping me down until there was so few games left that I ended up with thirty nine games with with the Kings. So, anyways, that's a, another story, the business side of the game. But I uh, I show up there in, in Long Beach and uh, and you, Mister Ferner, Mark uh, was tw twelve years older than me and and just made me feel comfortable. Like you were just one of those guys that like would invite me out for lunch or if we were on the road, like you know, take me to dinner. Or, um, and that's memorable. I mean, those things are memorable and that makes a difference for, for anyone, let alone a young guy coming into a new organization where I knew nobody there. 
right? Mm -hmm. Like I knew absolutely, I didn't know that league because the IHL was a different league. I was, I was familiar with the AHL. I didn't know the West Coast teams. Um, so little, in fact, Fernsey, I don't even, I, I don't know if you probably even knew this or would remember it at the time, but mm -hmm. I got, I got traded, did that, did that, uh, the flight, like the St. John's flight to Long Beach, which I mean, that flight doesn't exist obviously, but it's a hell of a long way to go. I don't know if you can go any farther in North America. I thought that I wasn't playing that night. I, I got a miscommunicated with, uh, with the management or whatever. And I thought I was playing in two days. Anyways, didn't have the best sleep the night before. Let's say that had that eight hour, nine hour flight day show up at the rink and my Jersey's hanging in the stall. Right. So my Jersey's in the stall boxy's there. He's like, you ready to go? And I'm just like, are you kidding me? I've had pretzels and peanuts. You know I mean, in the last 10 hours, you know? So anyway, so I go home back to the, back to the hotel to try and get a, you know, a nap and a bite to eat. I come back to the rink. I'm so unfamiliar with the league and the rink. I walk into the other team's dressing room. I'm shaking guys' hands, introducing myself. Really? Jason Fidel. Because you, <laughs> you'd have, so you'd you'd have to go right by our room then. You you went to right? Yeah. Well, I don't know which door I came in. I think I I mean I I don't all I remember is that I got about I got about 15 feet into this room and introduced myself to like six guys and they said, "Hey, kid, I think you're in the wrong room." So so I turn around and leave. And anyways, I mean, one of my funny pro stories. But but yeah, I mean, get back to the whole idea though. Is like I was uncomfortable. I mean, you're uncomfortable. You I mean you don't know anybody. You don't know the league. You don't know anyone. And it take took someone like you to step up and you know go to your way, shake shake a guy's hand. What are you doing after? You know that type of stuff makes a big difference. And I. You know, not everybody does it, but the guys that do do it um, are memorable, you know, and they, and they definitely can make a difference. Well, I, I think that was, and I looked it up, I think, Jason, 98, 99. Um, and, and we had a good group there. Like we, Danny Lambert was there. Patty Augusta was there. Um, Mark Hardy would have been the, the assistant coach. John Van Boxmere was the head coach. And, um, and again, I, I've learned so much from Boxy. I really did. I mean, I, I played 16 years and I played eight, eight years for him. Uh, wow. if, if you can play eight years for boxing, then, you know, we, that was kind of a love and hate relationship. Um, but he, he really emphasized culture and, and being a good teammate. And, and that's all it is. Right. I mean, I've been on the other side of it too, where you walk in the room and, you know, for the most part, everyone was pretty friendly and, and the closer you can come as a together as a team, the, the better you're going to be off. So, um, it's tough to get traded and, you know, if you have family and whatnot, but, you know, if you walk in the room and they, they can make you feel comfortable as soon as possible, then you're, you're way ahead of the curb. So that was something that, um, you know, not only myself, but I'm sure there's some other guys that um, certainly wanted to make sure that you felt comfortable because you're only there for eight games, right? I think, yeah. Well, we yeah, well, eight score, games too. and we had the, we did have that little playoff. Uh, we got knocked out, I think, in the first round by Saint, by Houston that year in six or something like that. And uh, anyways, but it was of I me mean, I, I enjoyed i definitely enjoyed my time there and, and and the guys and the area i mean that whole that whole area was was nice did, did you i mean you you played a little bit after that but not much i mean that was definitely the tale uh, tale of your playing career and then you got involved in in coaching was that was that something that you took with you as far as like trying to impart that thing with with your leadership group and the older guys of like how how we your your expectation was for how they should be acting um, hundred percent. I mean, obviously it was, I was winding down. I I'd spent a couple of stints over in, in Germany, uh, but always knew I wanted to get in coaching. So Voxy, again, being the man he is, he brought me back for one more year as a player coach. Uh, so I got to sit behind closed doors now with, with one of the smarter players that I believe is in the game and John Van Boxmeer. Um, and it, it was always about the culture and, and certainly you need good leadership. Um, 
you know, we, as a coach, you just try to, to steer the ship, right? Making sure that you, you keep it out of the ditch. You have to have good leaders um, and let them have some freedom. And, and even when I was started coaching as a head coach, more so in, in probably Vernon, I, I, I would stay out of the room as much as possible. That was their room. That was their sanctuary. They didn't need me coming in there every single day. They didn't need me talking, but certainly if, if I needed to go in there and peel the paint off the walls, I would too. But uh, that was kind of my introduction to, to coaching was in um, was in Long Beach and then career was over and I actually cut my teeth uh, in the Western League as an assistant coach with the Vancouver Giants. So their inaugural year. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because I didn't, I didn't see that actually when I was researching. I saw that you were with the Blazers again there and, and, uh, and stepped in with, with Micker. So you actually had an experience uh, in the league before, prior to that. Yeah, I was, at, I was in Vancouver for one year, and then um, Milan Dragosega was the coach. And, and uh, Dean Evison, who's now uh, in term at Minnesota, and Craig Bonner were coaching in, uh, in Kamloops. Uh, I think they were there for three or four years, and Scott Bonner was the GM in, in Vancouver. Um, both Dean and, and Craig were let go, and it was just a natural fit uh, to go to Kamloops. Um, I think Troy came in and as the head coach and ended up being a, an assistant there with him, and then he stepped down for health reasons and took the team over. So I was there for three or four years and then had an opportunity to become my own head coach and you know, come to, uh, to, to Vernon for four years. Uh, then went back to Everett, then came back, uh, went to actually back to Camo, sorry, for, for another year. And then the, the job available or a job in Vernon came available. So I came here for, for uh, I think, another five years. Yeah. Well, you're, yeah. And you're, and you're fast forwarding through a, a lot of that yeah. stuff. I'd love to sorry. get into, <laughs> I'd love to get into that whole aspect though of like, so you knew, I mean, and you've touched on that, uh, getting out of your career, that this was something that you wanted, your playing career, this was something that you wanted to do. You know, so you, you had that experience as the player assistant coach, and then you got in involved, stepped right in with the Giants. What was the, uh, what was the learning curve like for you being behind the bench and a, as an, as an assistant, what were you, what were you soaking up there and what were you learning before you had your first chance at a head job? Um, again, it was, it was a tough year in Vancouver, obviously an expansion year. We, we didn't have a lot of success. So I, I think you learn a lot from winning and you, you learn a lot from losing too. So, you know, the, the one thing that, that I wanted to always, and I told my wife this, that if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it my way. And I, I don't think there's anything wrong with being a player's coach. Um, I, I think you have to be, especially nowadays, um, you have to be very open to change. Um, it, it wasn't a dictatorship. You know, we'd have our systems in place. Like I said, I was fortunate that I played for some very, very, very good coaches. And I always seem to be a pack rat with it. So it, it's not about the X's and O's. It, I, I really don't think it is. I mean, I don't think that's how one coach gets an advantage over another coach. I think how one coach gets an advantage over another coach is how they treat their players. You know, if if your players will play for you, you'll hopefully have some success. I mean, and, and sometimes sometimes the best team doesn't win, right? Like there, there's yeah. lots that goes into it. So, you know, especially in junior hockey, when you're when you're coaching kids, the, the biggest thing is it has to be a safe place. You know, their parents are trusting you that you're going to look after their kid. You know, so that that's one thing that that I always try to do is is make it a very safe place, uh, make it a fun place, know the difference between work and fun. Um, you know, and making sure that 
when it was time to work, we would go to work and we wouldn't leave work till work was done. Uh, and it seemed to, to, to work, especially at the junior A level, for sure. Um, you know, Western League is a little bit different. I mean, there's a lot of intangibles that go into that league too. You have a draft or in junior A, you're just recruiting. Uh, but both great, both great leagues for sure. I mean, obviously it's a, a path of, of, you know, one's probably a quicker path to, to pro in, in the Western League. And, and um, you know, junior A is more uh, NCAA routed. Right. Yeah, no, you're, you're on, there's a lot there I want to unpack. One of which is you talking about being a player's coach and, and, and having a safe place. I think that was, you know, something that I've touched on before that was, wasn't necessarily the culture, you know, maybe when you started. And, and I think when, when my career started going that the, the player was viewed in my opinion as more of an asset or a commodity. And, uh, and some of these guys were just on the cusp of coming in and actually treating the player like a person, you know? And, and I think, when I've talked with you in the past, it seems that that was and has been a focus for you is, you know, what, what are these young men like, not young hockey players, what are these young men like and what makes these, these, these players tick as people? Uh, is that something that you were, you were, you were trying to focus on like consciously? A hundred percent. You know, and, and I guess there's two sayings, you know, are you a motivator or can you inspire kids? And I think there's a difference there. I think motivation, you can motivate players um, and depends on how you do it, but it could be a short-term fix. You know, you can motivate by fear. You can motivate by, you know, giving them a carrot. But if you can inspire them, um, I think that lasts a lot longer. It takes a lot longer, um, you know, but culture for me is everything, you know. So it was real important um, and maybe didn't have as much control over it in, in the Western League because there was a draft. But in Junior A, like I made sure that we, we brought good people in because um, the game is still a game and it should be fun because the parity between the players is real, real close. Um, you know, we we I certainly try to bring in certain types of players um, that, and I always always say to our kids that let's try, try to build a team that you want to go into a seventh game with as far as playoffs are concerned. And, um, you know, we, in junior hockey and in Vernon, I don't think we lost a seventh game. So we, and, and we had a great time doing it too. So um, having the ability to inspire kids is, is for, for me, I think more important than trying to motivate them. Yeah, that's really cool to, to say that inspiration versus motivation. To me, when I hear the word inspiration, like I almost think, you know, role model, mentor kind of example sort of scenario, right? Because you're giving them something to, to you know, to seek, something to, to look for. I mean, is that the way you you think of it when you say inspire? Or how, how did yeah. you plant that seed? Well, it, I think if, you, if you're inspired to do something, uh, I think it lasts longer. Like, I, you know, you could go to a kid and, and you know, if you don't do this, we're, we're going to do that. So that's, that's a form of motivation, I think. Um, you know, the, the, to inspire, I just feel like it lasts longer. You know, and, and there's a saying that you can, you know, reputation. Reputation or, or character. You know, reputation is what people perceive you as. You know, as an organization, you know, so-and-so organization, they have a good reputation. Well, those are the people that, that are on the outside looking in. They really don't know what's going on behind closed doors, you know. You know, so uh, again, we've talked about that a lot within our groups, um, you know, but character is who you are. That, that's at the end of the day is 
how you're going to play and how you're going to represent yourself or how you're going to represent your, your family's name. Um, you know, I would, I would give our guys heck all the time, you know, make sure your shoes are shined and your shirts tucked in, you got a belt and your ties done up and, and, and you look proper, you hold the door open for people. And, you know, it's, you have a responsibility to, you know, to, to represent yourself, your organization and your family the right way. Yeah, no, hundred percent. I I love that you use that too, because I actually use that with the players that I work with. Is because you can get caught up in the reputation aspect, and some people, I mean, being able to define what that is, you can't necessarily control it. You can do a lot of right things, you know, and not control what that what the reputation is, but you can control your character and how you show up on a day to day basis. You know, I mean, and that's something you're in control of. So when we can focus on what we can control as players and as humans, usually we get a lot of better results along the way too. So I, I like that you that you bring that up. How did how did as as a head coach now? I mean, you were a head coach in Kamloops, then you jumped into uh, to the BCHL with like ridiculous success. You know, like that. Uh, did you have a year? Was your first year the year that you guys went went and won it, or was that your second year? Uh, that would have been the second year. Second um, year. I think Mark Hollick was the coach, um, and he had gone. He, he took the Kootenay job, uh, the Cranbrook in the Western Hockey League. And and I was actually in Kamloops. I had started a small little business and Troy Mick had called me and asked if I'd have any interest in, in uh, being a coach GM in, in Vernon. At the time, I didn't really, you know, you get fired for the first time and it's it's always a, a tough thing, right? You know, and that's where Ken Hitchcock comes in and, and you know, basically tells me that you, you don't really become a coach until you get fired. And that's why Hitch is such a great coach because he's been fired a few times, but you know, it was a tough pill to swallow. Uh, then I had an opportunity to meet with um, Dr. Duncan Ray, who was the owner at the time. And my wife and I went out for dinner with him or lunch, drove to Vernon. And, and on the way home, I just said, you know, there, there's a man I could, could work for because all his beliefs and all his, um, you know, what he felt was important as far as values were concerned, so did I. So came in and we ended up losing to Penticton in, in, in seven games that, that first year, which a crazy series that we had. Um, the, the year previous, sorry, I should just wind, rewind here a little bit. Uh, the Vernon had gone to um, the league final against Nanaimo uh, and lost. So uh, knowing that, you know, we had a good chunk coming back and, and uh, we might have a pretty good hockey team, but, um, you know, it wasn't to be that year. And then and we made a couple adjustments and had some good young kids come in and, and, and started having some success after that. Right. Yeah. Would you want to, well, first of all, we should, we, we should acknowledge that, that Duncan's no other, no longer with us. And he was a, an icon in this community uh, for, for a long time. And, and, uh, just really did some great things with the team and everyone that worked for him and everyone that he, he touched seemed, seemed to, you know, really be impacted by him. So, uh, he, he had a, uh, a heart attack and, and, and is, and is no longer with us. Um, by a slight, we should, we should recognize that because he was a real good hockey man. A hundred percent. I mean, he had owned the team for, for 20 years, I think, or maybe more. Um, and the ironic thing about that was we had uh, the old civic where, uh, civic arena here in Vernon was torn down and we had an opportunity to play Prince George in, in one last game and it was a throwback game. So we had throwback jerseys and, you know, I wore a fedora on the, on, um, on the bench, but that was Duncan had bought the team and that's where they started. That was the last game that, that Duncan saw his hockey team play. And I think two days later he had passed away on um, January, close, close to our deadline. But 
um, he he was just a, a big happy man that would give everything. He loved the, this town in Vernon. He loved the hockey team. I, I haven't heard one player, one person ever say one bad thing about the man, and, and certainly he'll be sorely lost. And and obviously his wife ended up selling the hockey team. Um, but uh, just a great human being, great family. Yeah, and I heard he was good good to. Uh... You know, he, he allowed you to do your job too, and some people don't, right? Like he he understood, like you said, you guys had shared philosophies, um, but he allowed you to do what you do, what you hired for, and and that that is a really, I think that starts the culture too, right, of the team. Like that trust from that scenario goes to you, which now goes to the players, and I think that I mean that not not enough gets talked about that, but I, I do think that's that's relevant in the success of an organization. He cared. That's what he did. Um, you know, and that, that was kind of his philosophy, just hire the right people and let them do their job. I mean, and trust me, I, I wouldn't do anything without his okay. Um, you know, we talked a lot. Um, I mean, God, he, he was on every road trip. Like, he, he just loved being around the group. He was in the dressing room, and, and he loved going to Boston Pizza. Our, our players loved him. Um, you know, he, he would mingle in, in the crowd. Everybody knew who he was. Uh, and you don't get – too many owners like that. Um, I mean, he, he won, uh, what was it, five, six championships? And that's not by fluke. But he didn't, he didn't get, you know, he didn't get his fingers in there. He just let people do their, their job. Um, and like you said, th that doesn't happen very often. Yeah. So let's talk about those. I mean, so we, uh, you mentioned earlier, I mean, you, you went to three <clears throat> national championships in a row, which is ridiculous. One, two of them, the first two. And then the third one, I remember being a fan and watching it on TV. And I think, I mean, not that I just think, I mean, you, sh you should have, that's the shoulda, coulda, woulda, but in a one game finale, I mean, you guys dominated that game and ended up losing, uh, I think one, well, I think it was two nothing with an empty netter or something, but um, I mean, this close to, to win in three in a row. Um, just walk us through that time because that just must have been an amazing, amazing time to be to be coaching to be around that team. You know what it, it was, um, and and a lot of a lot of the praise needs to go to you know the, the ex uh, head scout too, uh, Larry Black. Uh, he was very influential of, of getting those right type of players, and I remember my first year. A um, couple couple stories here for you, Jason. Um, you know, Larry had been the, the head scout here for a long time. They had, you know, Troy Mick and Mark Hollick and I think Mike Vandy Camp at the time. So obviously a new coach coming in now. And and we went out for, for lunch and Duncan, myself and Larry. But Duncan had come up to me um, and said, you know, Larry's a, a little bit worried here because he's, he's not sure if, if you're going to like the same type of players that, that he likes. So I grabbed Larry and I said, Larry, I heard there might be some concerns that, that we're not going to like the same type of players. I don't understand what you're talking about. Cause well, gee, Mark, I just, you know, maybe you don't like the same type of players. I said, I'm going to make it real simple here, Larry. As long as you find good players, I'll like them. So just don't go find bad players. But he, you know, there's always been that, that discussion who brought in the two Jones boys, uh, Connor and Kellen Jones. Was it Duncan? Was it Larry? Was it Troy? Um, but, but again, going back to the culture, you know, we, we had tremendous leadership. Chris Crowell was our captain, uh, and he was a no-nonsense guy. I mean, he was our captain for two years, and we had Hunter Bishop who came back. And, and things just started to roll. Like, we, we did some different things. Um, it, it was more about our compete and our work ethic than anything else. Um, and, 
and, and they seem to thrive under that. And then obviously the next year we had another real good group and, and we built that team a little bit differently the, the, the next year, just because, you know, we had great series against Penticton and, and they tried to get bigger. And then we went with more speed and skill and had an opportunity. And we, we won again in Dauphin um, in Manitoba. Uh, and I'll, I'll be quite honest with you, Jason, that, that we had won back to back and we felt we need to um, restock the cupboards a little bit, even though we had a good core coming back. We had good culture and I just wanted those new players to, to get a taste of that. Because if, if you empty the cupboards too much, then, then you lose your culture and you can lose your culture in a hurry and it takes a long time to get it back. But, you know, we brought some other players in, uh, brought some younger players in and, and we didn't let our foot off the gas. I mean, we, in my opinion, I don't think, I didn't expect us to get there, but, but they did. And that's what winning does. Um, and yeah, we ended up going to um, Camrose, I believe it was Camrose and lost to um, Pembroke. Uh, Sheldon Keefe was the coach there. Who's now a coach in, in Toronto. And I think shots on that were 41 20 in our favor. And, you know, they got a, a lucky break on a block shot. Um, scored on a breakaway and then got an empty net. It's it's so ironic that you you could talk to me or ask the question about the two games that we were two uh, World Bank Cups that we won. I probably couldn't tell you, but I can tell you pretty much every play in that game that we lost. So that that's kind of the difference, you know. Just it it stings a little bit, but at the same time, very proud of the organization. Uh, it was my privilege to to coach here in Vernon. Uh, and we had terrific kids. We had, we had great kids. We have great culture. Um, and we got, you know, we had great ownership and, and great surrounding staff. That's awesome. Yeah. We, you talk about the the head scout there and you talk about the difference between being involved in the WHL and, and the BCHL and just from the difference of level of recruiting. And you did own that GM hat there while you were in, in Vernon. Um, you know, you said, bring me good players, but I, I know <laughs> you're saying that a little bit tongue in cheek, but the idea is, is that it does matter what type of player you bring in. Cause I know you're a guy that cares about intangibles a lot. And I know that, you I mean, you keep talking about the culture in the room and, and uh, you know, when that to me is not how well you stick handle and that's not how well you skate. That's the type of, uh, you know, character that you're bringing in with you as a person. Like how, how did you go about that recruiting process and, and what type of players were you looking for when it came, when it came to those intangibles? Oh, it's a good question, and, and certainly the, uh, all my philosophies aren't my philosophies. They, they come from coaches that, I, that I've played with, and, you know, we'd have long talks with, with our coaching staff and our, our scouting staff, and I would do the majority of the, the scouting out in, in, um, out in the States, and, and Larry would do BC, and we just had other people that agencies and, and agents would, would help a lot. As long as, you know, you're running a good program, they'll send you the players, so how I kind of went about it was, and it was real simple, Jason. Um, we, we'd have a box, like a, a quadrant, right? In that first quadrant, we'd have skill and character. That's what was in the box. And then the next box would be skill with no character. Next box would be no skill and character. And then the next box would be no skill, no character. Well, the no skill, no character, we didn't worry about. Okay, we wanted to try to get as many people in our organization, in our dressing room, that had skill and character. And then you have two more boxes. You got skill and no character. Well, we would trade those guys because everybody wants skill. And then we would try to, you know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't trade the, 
the no skill and character. And and our teams were, I like to hope and, and think that we were hard to play against. You know, we, we you still need the speed, you still need the, the skill. And we would just try to get as many people in that, that skill and character box that we could. And, you know, for, for three years, we for four years, we, we had a lot of players in those boxes. You know, and I never liked trading players. You know, you make a commitment to a kid um, and you make a commitment to a family. Um, but unfortunately, that's sometimes part of the deal. And the one thing I never did try to do, and I, I think I did a pretty good job of it, they committed themselves to the BC Hockey League. I've never traded uh, too many people outside the BC Hockey League, unless you know they were going back home to Saskatchewan or Ontario or something like that. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, there was a lot of respect from from the coaches and and, um, and the players, and you know, our assistants were great. Kevin Peterson was here for for a handful of years, and Jason Williamson and Eric Goddard and uh, Jared Smithson, uh, and we had fun doing it. Uh, we we really did. Like it, we had a good group, and it's a lot easier when you're when you're winning as well. Sure. No, hundred percent. What, um, when you say character, and that's one of the things that I've, I've talked about before, you I mean, sometimes on the podcast, sometimes from stage, uh, but character to me, it, it means something to you when you say it, right? It's one of those words and it means something to me when I say it, but it, sometimes it can mean different things to different people because it's such a, it's such a big box, right? Character. There's so many things that you can stuff in there. Like what, when, when you say that word, you're looking for, for character plus skill, like what, what initially pops out for you as part of being an intangible within character? Um, and a lot of it has to do off the ice, you know, how you treat people. You know, how, how you represent yourself. Um, you know, and we had tremendous amount of character. I mean, I, I had the privilege of, of coaching one player here in Vernon, um, local kid, Jagger Williamson. And and he had as much character as any player that I ever coached. I mean, to a point where, and you know how kids are, Jason. I mean, you'd go in the dressing room and they'd throw their tape. And, and I wouldn't say anything. It wouldn't go in the garbage can, but I'd go over and pick it up. And I wouldn't yell at him and scream at him. That to 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 the point where I hope at the end of the year or halfway through the year that they would identify that. And and sure enough, I mean, guys like Jay or someone would throw a roll of tape, and he would be the one playing five years in the league, and he'd be the one going to pick it up. So character is who you are as a person, um, you know. And I think it goes well beyond what you do on the ice. I think it's how you treat people. Um, you know, even when you're, when things aren't going your way, it's easy to be for that good guy when, when you're having success, but it shouldn't change you who you are. Um, you know, and so he was, he was one of the more, I'm not going to say better character, but he had a tremendous amount of character, not that we didn't have it throughout our dressing room, but at the end of the day, it was just who you are as a person. Um, and I think who you are as a person ends up translating to how you play on the ice. And, um, you know, that was the biggest thing for me. So we, we kind of stayed away from certain types of players, and it wasn't so much, you know, he had a tremendous amount of numbers. But uh, if you're not going to be a good teammate, um, it, it's not going to go. It's not going to work. And, and I think Barry Trotz had, had the best quote. Uh, if you want to go somewhere fast, go by yourself. If you want to go someplace far, go with a team. All right. So – yeah, no, for sure. And I like how you touch on that too, because those, those people qualities, like, you know, the, this idea of, 
I don't know, like what else could you put in there? You can put in, you know, leadership, you can put in resiliency, you can put in your dedication and commitment. And and I think a lot of those things deserve check marks in the character box, right? And if you have guys that are willing to do those types of things and are and are maybe a little more skilled uh, in the in the dedication and commitment department and the teammate department, I mean, yes, that translates on the ice, right? Because like all those all those things that are happening in the dressing room or in the weight room or away from the rink, you mean that that's something that you just can't have an on off switch. I've found right, and the guys that don't have the on off switch, like they they do things a certain way, and when you put a group of guys uh, or or men and women together in a in a scenario that do things the same way and and, and follow the same principles, now you're getting talking about something special. Well, it habits, right? Um, and, and that's the one great thing about um, about team sports, and especially at, at a younger age, because you you got a lot of different personalities, hundred percent, right? They're coming from different backgrounds, different, and that that's what was great about uh, junior A. Like, it's just not restricted to um, to Canada or BC or, or the West. I mean, you're getting kids from Ontario, you're getting kids from Quebec. You know, we we seem to have a, a tremendous amount of success getting the the right ones from the states too. Um, but peer pressure comes into play, you know, and that's where the culture too. Uh, so you, your, your culture has to be right. Um, you know, the one thing that I would always say to our group that, you know, the, the quicker we can come together as a, as a team, the, the further we're going to go. Um, so there was no veteran, there was no rookie stuff. Um, you know, they'd have their little fun with it and whatnot, but at the same time, um, when you put all that stuff aside, because you're not going to win, like you're, you're going to need your 16, 17 year olds to win. And, and I always said to our older players that you guys are going to lead the way. This is going to be your hockey team. I'm just going to steer the ship. You guys are going to, you know, put all the work in, uh, but, uh, but I'll work just as hard as you guys do, but make sure that these kids are, are heading in the right direction because they're going to, at some point be the leaders of the hockey team. And if you, if you learn from the right types of leaders, then it makes it a lot easier because it becomes a habit and that's just your culture. And if your culture is right, um, you know, it's going to give you a good chance to win. No, hundred percent. A couple of questions are from the coaching aspect. One, one, you mean having team success usually leads to individual success. And, and I can't, I, I didn't do the the research on those teams, like how many teams from your, from your uh, championship squads that, that went on to NCAA scholarships. But sometimes that's a hard, that's a hard thing to get through, especially at the, uh, at the teenage level. I mean, even at the pro level, but especially the teenage level where you're not getting the minutes you want, right? You want to have this personal path. Like you, you want to get somewhere, whether it's the NHL or get drafted or, or get your NCAA scholarship and you feel like you're not getting noticed. How do you? How, how did you go about letting guys believe in the fact that hey, you, you play your role here, uh, you come together and play for each other, and if we have success together, you will have success on your on your on your own. Uh, it, that might have started the first year, um, you know. And we had Hunter Bishop, who is a terrific hockey player. Uh, I think he just finished playing some pro hockey. Played over in Europe, played in the East Coast League. Maybe had a little bit of a stint in the American Hockey League as well, but. We're going into game seven against Penticton our first year. And we had probably half the group had scholarships, and, and they knew where they were going after that, right? They just did. But we also had some older players that didn't have scholarships. So that was kind of the message that I had sent to them. You know, and, and I was – I would always warn our players. <laughs> That's the one thing I would do. I, I would never um, throw a question at them, especially if it was going to be a tough question. I would always, you know, tee it up for them. 
go, hey, listen, Hunter, this is what I'm going to come in. I'm going to say this, okay, just so you're not shocked at it. So I came in and I said, you know, Hunter, where are you going next year? Good. I'm going to, where is he going? Notre Dame, possibly. I'm not, I apologize. I can't remember. That's, you know, 15 years ago. Yeah. Um, and I went to Bryce, um, um, not Bryce Kokoski, his brother, older brother. I said, well, defenseman, 20 year old. I said, where are you going next year? He goes, nowhere. And basically, I left the room. Because it was always about, for, for me, it was always about if we can play harder for the player next to you than you do for yourself, that's when you become a team. So it was always, and we've had those players. I mean, I remember Ryan Santana. He, you know, he bounced around in the USHL. He bounced around in the NA and a California kid and a good friend of mine said, you got to give him a chance. So he was 20 years old. He didn't get his scholarship to Boston University till uh, the World Bank Cup in Victoria. And he was shocked. He was like, I said, Chance, you know, BU wants to talk to you. I go, BU? Who's BU? I don't know a BU. I said, Boston University. You know, he ends up getting a scholarship uh, last two games, last two days of, of junior A hockey. So you, you never know, right? You just keep keep going and, and control what you can control. Uh, that's what we'd always try to do and, and be a good teammate. Work hard for your teammates. Because the one thing, you know, if you don't, your teammates will be the first ones to identify when you stop working and stop competing. Yeah. Not not the coaches, not your teammates. You know, so that that was something that that I always tried to reiterate to to the players that it's not about me, it's not about the coaching staff, it's not about anybody else except your teammates. Yeah. And, no, that's great. That's great stuff. What about there's a uh... I don't know. I mean, not that there's a debate, but I mean, you've now you you've you've stepped out of the coach and you were you were scouting this year. When you look at the WHL and your your time with with that in the coaching capacity and then scouting it, like, where, how do you feel those leagues compare? Like, is is a is a good team in the BCJHL? Would they be able to compete in the WHL? Uh, good question. I mean, it just they're different routed kids, right? I mean. A, a good team, yeah, they could. Uh, but but at the same time, there's a lot of teams that that go through that that flux in the, in the Western League where it's a rebuild. Where I don't think you know in Junior A there's a rebuild because there's no draft. It's just recruit, recruit, recruit. So there's there's a lot of work in both sides. Uh, um, there is some parities, no question about it. Uh, I think you know the goaltending possibly could be better in the Western League. You got your top two or three defensemen, your top three or four players. And then after that, it, you know, it, it starts to even itself out. I mean, you look at my last year in Vernon. I mean, we like, we had seven players on our hockey team that ended up going back to Western Hockey League. So, and I'll just be quite honest with you, Jason, some of them really struggled here in Vernon. They, they just the, – the difference from from that, from my perspective, is – I would never give our players roles, right? I just wouldn't. Where maybe at the Western Hockey League, because there's a difference in talent level where you got your power play guys, you got your penalty killing guys, you got these types of players. I, I expect that our players to all play the same. You know, I expect you to play good defense. I expect you to block shots. I expect you to finish checks, and I expect you to score. I just thought at the junior A level, um, you, you're pigeonholing a, a 16 to a 20-year-old kid that, you're never good enough. You're not a power play guy. 
you know, I don't penalty killing guy. So I expected them all to uh, contribute in some in some way, and and that's at that. Then you got a team that just got wave after wave after wave of the exact same thing. So, right. I would have to say that the Western Hockey League is better, but these kids could play in the Western Hockey League. They're just di- routed differently, right? Yeah. There's some kids that should go to the Western League, and there's some kids that should go to school. Mm-hmm. Do you have an opinion on that? I mean, I and why I kind of asked that question in the first place. I mean, I played in both leagues, and I know that it's actually changed now. That there's a lot more guys becoming pro from from that college system, right? It's, it, it's not an either or anymore. It kind of was a little bit for a while. You know, it was there was less guys coming out of the college route in the junior A rank that would that would sign pro contracts instead of in the NHL, and that's that's not the case anymore. So that's that's good, but. Um, from a scouting perspective now, like to watch a, a BCJHL game, right? And a, and a kid that's a performer or a good skater or whatever there, like you, you do need to be able to take him out of that mentally, at least at least I would assume you would, and, and put him in that WHL environment or even a pro environment. How does he measure up in, in, in that scenario? And, and that's the toughest thing, right? Because you're almost comparing apples to oranges, yeah. right? You know, you're still playing the same game, but um, – I think the, obviously the the talent pool is deeper in in the CHL and, and you know from a pro's perspective. I mean, I only got my toe in the water for for one year with with Buffalo, but um, it's all about projection too, right? So where's he going to be in three years from now? You know, where's he going to be in five years from now? And that's why you'll see a lot of um, a lot more junior A players possibly getting drafted too because they, there's longer period because they're at school might not have to sign that contract and that 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 was the learning curve for me too that you know nothing really changed as far as the scouting or, or my philosophy I think it was very similar to what um, you know I'd like to think Buffalo was thinking and possibly a lot of other teams uh, in the NHL are thinking too but the biggest thing is projecting where these kids are going to be here in in three years from now you know yeah. are they going to grow are they going to get quicker uh, is your skating going to improve? Um, you know, so where, as you know, as well too, that analytics has really, really come into, um, in, into a lot of the decision-making, but there, there's so many intangibles that you can't analyze, um, that, that don't really make sense. So, um, you, you look at Kel McCarr, I mean, came out of, out of Brooks or the AJHL you know, one of the best, if not the best young talent that, that's in the National Hockey League right now. And, you know, um, Brooks got another good young player uh, next year as far as that draft is con- concerned. So there's talent everywhere. Um, it just depends on what, what you're looking for. Sure. I have a good question from the group here. Just a reminder that we are live in the Facebook group. So if anyone out there listening on the podcast later, you can definitely join the Facebook group. Uh, it's called Up My Hockey Parent Group. And there's somebody that was working with you and Vernon here, uh, didn't identify themselves, but they said, please ask him what he finds the biggest difference when scouting to recruit versus scouting to draft or sign as a free agent. Does your, does your approach change? Uh, probably a little bit. I mean, when, when you're, when you're recruiting for, for your junior team per se, you might only have them for one year. Right. So, um, Size doesn't necessarily matter. I mean, we we had some some smaller players here in Vernon that were were tremendous. Uh, you know, the two Jones boys. I mean, five foot ten, five foot nine. Uh, Liam Finley, five foot seven. Uh, tough toe. Connor um, Jagger Williamson. So when when you're recruiting for 
junior size isn't as big of a factor per se um, as when you're recruiting for pro. Um, you know, what are they going to be in, in five years from now? Like, yeah. are they going to play? And then, as you know, Jason, I mean, you, you played a long time. It's hard. It's hard to play in the National Hockey League. You know, there, there's some, you know, some core components that, that I'm sure every team has. And, you know, what you're identifying, you know, is skating, the character, the compete, the hockey sense. You know, there's so many things that go into it. You know, does he have coachability? How driven is this kid? Um, you know, will he do things that that help you win in the playoffs? So it, it was a change for sure. I mean, it was different, but at the same time, I mean, it was still the same philosophy. Um, like in, in junior A hockey, you might be able to have a one and done, yeah. but that doesn't help your culture, yeah. right? Your, your culture better be in order, and that's where – you know, you look at the Buffalo Sabres, per se, or you look at the Boston Bruins, or you look at St. Louis or Pittsburgh, you know, probably those upper teams for sure, um, you know, the Boston Bruins. I mean, what, what a tremendous culture they have, the St. Louis Blues. I mean, they got that winning mentality. So, um, yeah. you know, you, you can win in junior A hockey. You just got to recruit properly and bring the right types of kids in. And I guess you say, like, I mean, the biggest thing is the timeline, I guess, listening to what you're saying there. I mean, when you're recruiting, what you see is what you get because you're recruiting for that next season. You mean, that player, you've seen what that player is. You know what he's going to expect from him in the fall, whereas uh, in a scouting capacity, you're, you're trying to you're trying to project an 18-year-old, 17-year-old kid as what he's going to be at 23, you know, as, as a pro. And that's there's a big departure there. Yeah, and there, there's so much due diligence that go into it. Um you know, and you, you, no different than you would do in junior A, but it's just, it's just a deeper dive, right? It's just, you know, you're talking to billets, you're talking to parents, you're talking to ex-players, uh, ex-coaches, teachers, um, you know, who, is he going to grow? Uh, is he going to put weight on? Uh, analytically, you know, there, there's so much computer stuff that you can watch, like Sport Logic. We did a lot of video coaching as well, which I really enjoyed. Uh, maybe some of the, the scouts with Buffalo didn't because they, they weren't a, a video oriented group but that's all i did for 16 years as far as a coach was watch video and that's sometimes that's all you can do so you know it's not the same as watching live which you have to do but um you know where you you might be able to put up with a kid <laughs> for you know six months um but at the same time you know is he going to be a pro you know, and, and some of these kids just want that opportunity to go to school too, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. Using using hockey to get an education is great. You know, right. you don't have to have bigger aspirations. I mean, that's a big goal. Oh. I mean, it's hard to do too, right? I mean, that's a that's a great great vehicle. Uh, you mentioned the word coachability, and that was another uh, question that came in from the group uh, requesting that we speak about it a little bit and how important it is and even maybe what that means. Like if you're a young athlete and there's a lot of young athletes that listen to this podcast, Mark, that, you know, are, are, are trying to find their way and and they hear the word coachable. What, what, uh, is that is that an intangible that that is relevant and important to them? And, and if so, what does that mean? Uh, that's good. That's a Good question. It's always a tough thing, right? But I think it all falls back onto character too, right? Like, are you prepared to to for change? Um, like, like, I I would never be a coach that would guilt guys into it. I'd never scream. I never yelled. Um, and I think it, it was more about trust. So, um, the players need to coach. Their, the players need to trust their coach, and their coach needs to trust their players. 
and, and once that that um, boundaries down or that walls down, I, I think they start to believe a little bit more. And I think, but as you know, too, this is a why generation. The, the kids need to know why, not how we're going to do it, but why are we doing it? Um, and I, I think as a coach, I think that's something that you need to take the time to, to let them know this is why we're going to do it. Cause this is, we're going to have success this way. So, you know, you got to be a good listener too. Like I would get so mad at our kids sometimes, Jason, that, I don't care if you screw up a, a drill or, or whatnot. That's going to happen because I was one of those guys too when I played that you'd screw up drills up. And that's probably one of the best pieces of advice that I got as a coach is if the drills aren't going well, the best thing you do is get in it. And then you'll find out why it's not going well. <laughs> but the, the one the one skill that, that I always ask our ki- kids to have is is a listening skill. And, and that is a skill. And I think that's all about coachability. Um, but – as a coach, you, you need to take the time to make sure that they, your players know or you know the best way for your players to learn. You know, physically, they got to walk through it. Verbally, you can tell them, or, or physically they or visually, they have to, to see it. So we'd always try to teach in all three ways, you know, because that's the last thing the kids want to do is put up your hand and say, you know, I don't understand what we're doing here. And nice. if need be, you got to take them aside. So, you know, the biggest thing is to make sure that they trust you and um, and and they know why they're doing it, but also understand that they might not understand what the heck you're talking about. So take sure. the time to teach, right? You have to no, I think that's important. I mean, super relevant for all the parents and, co- and coaches out there listening. Like you need to have established that trust. And once that trust is established, now they believe you are pushing them forward and to develop, right? And to be the best player they can be. So now they become coachable. Okay, I trust this guy. I'm going to listen to what he has to say, right? Like that, to get the most out of your players, for for, for sure that level of trust has to be there. But what happens, um, and it's tough to have, a, I mean, a, a solid answer to this, but what happens for the players, and there are players out there that don't think that their coaches, they don't trust their coaches. They don't think their coach has their best interest at heart yet, but you're still in the sport and you still want to progress and you still want to be seen or identified. Like how do you become coachable in that environment? Do you have any, would you have any um, suggestions for that? Yeah. And and again, it's tough because as a parent or as a player, all you worry about is one person, right? Yourself. As a coach, you got to worry about 20. So what I would do sometimes, Jason, is, is, I would let our players come up with some systems because it's not about the X's and O's. I and mean, you can forecheck a lot of different ways, as you know, in the, you know, forecheck one, two, 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 one, two, whatever. You can one, two, two in neutral zone, one, one, three, whatever. That's not, you know, you can shrink in your own end. You can play standard D zone. So it was never about, uh, about the, uh, the, the X's and O's, but what would happen is, once you get them involved, once they have a voice, now there's accountability. So it's not because what, what happens sometimes is, well, gee, we're, we're, if we played this system, we'd be a better, I'd be a better player. I'd be a better, we'd be a better team. So sometimes it's, it's okay to let your, your players have some input because then if they have input, now you have accountability because then you can go to them and say, listen, you know what? You guys picked this system, not me. You want to play this way? 
Well, then you, it's, it's everything is still surrounded around hard work yeah, and, and accountability, you know, and I, I get it, you know, coachability and well, he's a coach isn't playing me properly. I'm not playing in the right situations. Why should I listen to him? Like he's not, doesn't have my best interest in hand. Well, it's not about any one individuals. It's about the team. There's not one person that should be bigger than the team. And I think if that message can get sent by a coach that this is about the group, and if the group has success and you'll have success. And if you have any issues, come talk to me. And it's okay for a coach to change too. Right. right. And it kind of goes back to, it's okay to be a player's coach. I like my coach. I want to work hard for him. Yeah. You know, I, I'm not playing with the right guys. Well then put him somewhere else. Right. How maybe, maybe the two, maybe the two guys that don't want to play with you either. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's not about you. So it, yeah. you can, you can do lots of different things and just to gain the, the players to trust. That's yeah. the biggest thing. Trust is huge. Trust is a huge word in sports. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it, yeah. And, and I'm glad it is now. Right. Because it, uh, it, it wasn't that way before. And I think it is, it, it is that way now. I love the accountability thing you talk about too, is because when, when the athlete, even with what I, what, what I do, not even like not discounting what I do, but when I work with guys one-on-one -on -one or in a group environment, the first thing that I want to establish is what it is that they want, right? It's not what I want. Or it's not what the parents want. It has to be what they want. And once they establish what they want and there's a clear idea of what that is, what the end game is, now there's a plan that we develop together that they become accountable to, right? Because this isn't sure. for me, it's for you. So now, now, the, now the ownership on the execution is on them. And when we talk about a team, like you're saying, head coach of, of a hockey team, when, when we keep that, uh, you know, that goal in mind, that they, they, they form that goal and now they're forming the plan, they have to become accountable. And when you get that buy-in, that's really, really cool. I, I love that you talk about doing that because sometimes don't. It's, some guys, it's a, a top-down thing all the time, right? Well, this is the way. This is yeah. the way, this is the way. And uh, I just don't find that as being a successful model, especially in, in today with today's no. athletes, right? The why out. No. You know, you, you're, you're just steering the ship, right? I mean, you're just, they're the ones putting the work in. And that's something that uh, I would always say to our kids that I would, I'll never yell and scream. I'll never embarrass you. I'll never throw you in under the bus in the paper. You know, but what, what gets said behind closed doors. But if we do have success, you'll be the ones getting it. You, you'll, you'll. So they they knew that that I was would protect them um, to a point, but getting back to your point of, of finding what they really want, and, and if you ask the right questions, and this is what I always do, Jason. I would always whatever they'd finish with. Uh, you know, I, I don't like who I'm playing with. Well, what do you mean who you're playing with? You start peeling that onion back, and you'll really get to the root of the problem. And it might be something completely different. Yeah. Right. Like it, it's. But, but they're kids too, you know, they, their brains don't develop till, you know, they're 23 and that's just proven. So you don't know what's going on in their life. If they got a girlfriend or school or family. So you, you gotta, you gotta care for them. They got, they gotta know that you do care for them. Um, and it's still just a game. Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. When you, I'll, I'll finish with one question here. Uh, that I think is interesting. I, I've definitely beat the drum on the intangible side a lot with, with my audience, as far as, you know, we, we spend so much time as parents and athletes on, you know, the power skating and the time on ice and the skills coaches and, and this type of aspect, we don't necessarily consciously think about 
the intangibles of character and of leadership and of communication and of emotional management and these types of things where, in my personal opinion, I think these are massive drivers to the skill component of a hockey player, right? If you have these things as a solid foundation as a person, that you're going to be a, a better hockey player at the end of the day. And, and guess what? And if hockey doesn't work out, you're going to be a better human. So, I mean, it's a win-win scenario. Like When you... If I, if I take a step away from that now and ask you as a scout, like when we're talking about projections of a 17 or 18-year-old kid, what they're going to be like as a 23-year-old, I would think that that intangible side of the character is a big driver to how those skills project. So although you're watching a lot of hockey games, you must be investing a lot of time in figuring out, hey, what, what makes these guys tick and what are they like on the inside? 100%. 100%. And again, I can only speak um, – for the Buffalo Sabres, obviously I'm not working with them anymore. They, they made a lot of changes there, but uh, the people that put our, our book together, they've been in the game a long, long time. Um, and that was their number one, excuse me, priority is character. It, it really was. I mean, you look at, and, and again, I, I don't know for sure, but typically all your leaders are, have tremendous amount of character. All your captains have character. All your assistants have character. Um, you know, and I've always said that, that skill will get you in the door. Character will keep you in the room. Um, and it, it's who you are as a person. And I think it starts at home, you know, it, like little simple things, you know, picking up after yourself. If you have good habits, you know, be respectful, be polite, hold the door open for somebody, but, and, and care about your, you know, your appearance. Just treat people the way you want to be treated. Um, and I think that's where the character starts. And once you have that, and then, then you have a good work ethic. And then it becomes a habit. And then it becomes a lifestyle. And it just goes on and on and on. And it can go the other way, too. Right? Like, I mean, if you, if you go down that, down that wrong path, it, it's tough to, you know, get back on the right one. So um, character is who you are. Yeah, no, that's cool. One of the things I did, Mark, I, I, you you might like it or not, but um, as an Adam coach, my first year, I was like thinking about that, right? Like, how do we, how do we kind of ingrain some character things, some accountability, some respect for the sport, right? In in this was at the time nine and ten year olds, right? So uh, one of the things I came up with in, in the first speech was uh, I'm like if we're going to play on this team, it was a traveling team. It wasn't a house team, right? I was like, the, your parents don't touch your gear anymore. So the parents were in the room, right? I was like, they don't touch it. You carry it in, you air it out. You, you're responsible for getting your skates sharpened. I don't want to see one mom or dad dragging your gear in. Right. And, and some of the parents were looking at me like I was crazy, but like, for me, it was like, like that's that little piece of like, now you start appreciating, right. What's going on around you and what it matters. And this is your, these are your tools of your trade. And it kind of starts, you know, they, they start thinking about things differently, right? And it's not mom's fault if the elbow pad isn't there. It's your fault. And now you have to have, uh, you know, there's repercussions and consequences to that, to you not being accountable to to your tools. So anyways, I mean, do you think that would, like that's kind of what you're it, talking about it, there? With 100%. Different... And you know what? And, and, and it should be like that. You know, and we've created that society. You, Jason, you look at the bags now. They got wheels on them. We're just trying to make it easier for them, right? <laughs> Where we all know that life isn't easy, but but that's the simplest thing. You know, they're 10, 11, 12 years old. They can carry their own bag, right? Yeah. You know, making your own bed. Clean up after yourself. Just the, the littlest things, 
you know, mean the biggest thing. And, and people take notice of that. And you were probably, your, your families or your, your parents were probably, thank goodness, thank God, I don't have to carry the little bugger's bag anymore, right? Because it's going to get to a point, well, when, when do they start carrying their bag? Is there, is there a code? Right. right. Is there a code for that? You know, fill your own water bottle up, take yeah. your own stick out. Yeah. So that, that's, that's awesome. That Good for my you. first guest who you mentioned was Kevin Peterson um, on the show, episode one. And we had a great conversation and, and he actually brought that up. He said, going back into the, uh, the brick kind of scenario, right? Like those nine year old kids that, you know, he was, he was responsible for, um, you know, being on the bench with. And, and so he's seen a lot of great players come through, you know, at, at that nine-year-old level. And and he said it was amazing how often, like, that those kids that were good players were also the guys that would fill up their own water bottle. Or they were also the guys that were taping their own stick. They were also the guys, you know, that had this level of accountability about themselves and within the sport that ended up going on and, and you know, being professionals and, and having great careers. So I, I don't think I don't think we're blowing smoke and mirrors here. I think this is a real deal, you know, and uh, – and that's the one thing that I that I'm really passionate about speaking about, and especially with parents and on this platform, is that yeah, don't don't clear the way. Like you say, the the, the bags with the wheels. Like don't allow the adversity to happen. Allow them to have to muddle their way through it and figure it out because that's the stuff that's going to give them the grit and the grease to be able to you know to yeah. to be successful, whatever it is they want to be. That, that, that's not adversity, really. That's just. Sooner or later, you're going to have to do it. But what, when when society said, well, you're only going to start doing it when you're 14. Like even, even at junior level, like, God, like carry your own bag. Like we, we'd make everybody clean the bus, not just the rookies. We'd make everybody. Like I'm 100 years old now, Jason. And I was unloading the bus. <laughs> right. Like I, you know, 3 o'clock in the morning, I'd be the first one unloading the bus. I'm not better than anybody. But if they see me doing it, and as far as parents are concerned, like, yeah, if you're going to let them do it, if you're going to let them not carry their bag, you know what they're going to do? They're not going to carry their bag. Right. Right? See, yeah. mom, get my bag. Dad, yeah. you know, carry my stick. You know what? No, it's yours. Like you say, it's your tool of your trade. They look after you. You better look after them. Yeah. So 100%. good for you. That's awesome. No, cool. And I'm glad you mentioned the uh, the cleaning the bus too. Have you ever read the book Legacy? Have you have you, have you oh, heard that one? I I'm a big fan. I, yeah. I got something though that, that's pretty interesting. It's uh, long story. Make it short. Uh, went to a, a a funeral. I ran into a fella, and the family was from New Zealand. Um, and I ended up talking to him. Very interesting man. Like they had come over from New Zealand. They were originally from there. The, the fellow that passed away. Um, so I talked to him for like three hours and I finally asked him, I said, what do you do? He goes, well, I coach coaches. Oh, I'm not really sure what that means. He goes, well, that's our version of sports psychology over in New Zealand. I said, well, for who? He goes for the all black rugby team. Oh, wow. So he had actually sent me their case study of, he, he got me hooked on legacy. So I read it and I got it highlighted you know, front to back. But this case study is like, wow, you know, cleaning the shed. Yeah. Right? Cleaning That's what the I was going to talk about. I mean, yeah. Sweep the shed. Yeah. Sweep the shed. Yeah. And it's not, the, it's the old players. Like, look after your room. That's your yeah. room. Look after it. Look after your gear. And a quote in there is, is awesome. Is this isn't your jersey. You're just looking after it. It's not yeah. yours. 
Yes. So great book. If people no, haven't read it, book. unbelievable. Yeah, no, and and I'll just I'll just clean up the the, the dust there on that one. Like they they went through it, it for those who aren't familiar with with rugby or whatever. The All Blacks are a historic like uh, world class uh, rugby team. It's their national team that's been around for a hundred years. New Zealand obviously is a small little country, and they compete on the world stage consistently. It's one of the most winningest franchises ever. Um, but there was a period of time where they where they weren't successful for a while. They they were they were falling away from what they were all about, and they 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 retooled everything and they went they they got away from the person. I mean that's what that was my biggest takeaway. Like they started recruiting and attracting the best people that they could, and they built all these tenants around the team on on character and on people, and 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 then they started to rebuild this this. Uh, you know, this tradition that they had and a uh, real powerful book, any coach, any parent out there, you mean, you can get, you definitely can get something from that book. But uh, Mark, I think we're, we're, we'll wind her down here. Awesome guest. I knew you'd be great to talk to you. Love the stories. I love the insight and um, you know, just really want to congratulate you on such, on such success that you've had there behind the bench and, and in your time, not only as a player, but away from the game. And, and I know right now you got a little bit of pause on, on what's going on there, but I know you'll, you'll, uh, you'll come up, stronger than ever in whatever it is you, you want to do. So thanks so much for being here today. Jason, I appreciate it. I'm going to leave you with a story though. Okay? Beauty. Okay. This is, you know, I felt like I played a long time and, and, and you would remember this coach, Tommy McVie. Remember Tommy McVie? Yeah. I remember that name. Yeah. He okay, so, didn't he? yeah he, he was, he scouts for Boston. Now he coached in New Jersey. He was coach of the year in New Jersey. He was kind of in the, the Scotty Bowman era. Yeah. Right. So they both coach, but I never had the opportunity to, to play for, for Tommy. He's still, he's still around. I think he lives in Seattle or Washington area, but I got a funny story about Tommy McVean. It's one of my favorites. So um, he was coaching in Utica in the minors and they, again, character, it was tough. It was different back then, right? Just different. He had a good player in, in uh, Jeff Medill. I'm not sure if you know the name, real good minor league player. Um, but I don't know if self-proclaimed, self-nicknamed, called him, he was Mad Dog Medill. Jeff Mad Dog Medill. Maybe he's a little chubby, okay, a little bit overweight, which was fine back then. So, and if you, if you know Tommy, he had a little bit of a darker, you know, deep voice, like you talk like this. And so this is how the story goes. So they're in the dressing room and, um, Tommy's not very happy with the mad dog. Goes in there, hey, mad dog. There's two things that are going to keep you out of the NHL. Really? Like, how am I going to get the NHL? Like I said, there's two things going to keep you out of the NHL, you fat bastard. It's a knife and a fork. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the character of even the coaches back then. So that, that was one of my favorite stories with Tommy McVie that – he told the kid it wasn't going to get to the NHL. There was two things, and it was called a knife and a fork because he was overweight. <laughs> but great story, by. And there's some, some honesty to that too, I'm sure, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, no, thanks again. And thanks for everyone uh, tuning in today. There's a lot of people saying thanks, Mark. The, from, Absolutely. From the, I enjoy this, Jason. Live. They said they really appreciate it, had a great job, loved it, loved it. Thank you, thank you. So 
um, yeah, it's great that we were able to do this. I think that went well, um, being here live in the group and and having some people interact and allow them to get their questions in too. Because I think that's that's really what what I like doing here with this is allow the accessibility because it's awesome for me to have the conversation, be able to bring it out. But there's questions that other people have that that are very relevant to them in their own sure. situation. So being able to open up the door to that and, and talk with someone like you, I think is pretty cool. So well, I appreciate um, thanks for doing you. that, Mark. Yeah, hundred percent, Jason. Appreciate it. Thanks very and, much. Um, and thanks for everyone listening. And um, that takes us to the end of uh, Up My Hockey with uh, ep with Mark uh, Ferner here, episode 24. Thanks so much, everybody. Well, thank you so much for being here today. I really enjoyed my time with Mark, as did uh, the Facebook group uh, that were able to partake with that interview live. Uh, once again, we mentioned a couple times during the interview, but if you want to join join the group it's uh, at up my hockey uh, slash parent group uh, it's a private group you need to request and if you have kids and you're involved in getting closer access to some of these amazing guests that i'm bringing on uh, get your name mentioned on the air uh, ask your question personally by all means please join us there the group is growing and it's a lot of fun uh, mark what a what an awesome awesome interview he is so engaging and he's so insightful and just dropping nuggets everywhere and i I just really found myself nodding my head a ton while he was speaking because uh, it's a truth. Uh, his philosophies are truths to me uh, in how I approach uh, the game of hockey with whether it's me coaching a team or whether it's me parenting my kids or whether it's the clients that I'm working with one-on-one -on -one, that all these intangibles are big deals uh, and they're the difference makers for, for most players and for most organizations because scouts and coaches and, and organizations are looking for guys they want to have in the locker room. A lot of times we're always focused on what type of player is on the ice, but we have to understand that the player in the locker room matters a ton. And who that player is in the locker room um, is indicative of how good of a player they're going to be on the ice too, because they're going to push their ability. They're going to push their work ethic. They're going to push their standards. They're going to bring everyone else around them up. Uh, they're going to make the environment safe and challenging uh, and competitive. So. Uh, you've heard it from me time and time again. Uh, the key to success is to focus on things between your ears that you can control. You know, your mindset, your character, your determination, your focus, all these things um, that are within our control. And if we apply the intention to them, then all of a sudden, man, we start getting that special secret sauce that uh, makes us a really, really powerful force on the ice. So, Mark, thank you so much for sharing your, your details with us today. And until next time, play hard. Keep your head up.